I'm Dominic Moyo. I'm the Field Trial and Hunt Test Program Manager, and I'm joined here today with Todd Kellum, and we're going to discuss the Elite Shed Dog Series, some rule changes, and the program as a whole. You're listening to the UKC Hunting Ops Podcast, celebrating hunting dog heritage, competition, and community. United Kennel Club has been the hunting dog sports home for coonhounds, beagles, retrievers, pointers, cur feist, and more for over 125 years. This podcast is fueled by Yukonuba, the official performance dog nutrition partner of UKC. So how's, uh, how's puppy life been for you? Oh, man. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. You take a nice, quiet household with a couple of old dogs in it and then mm. uh, add a puppy to the mix and good grief. Yeah. But you you know all about it too, don't you? Yeah, I do. Uh, my puppy's only a couple weeks younger than yours. Yeah. It, uh, I took it for granted what it's like to have a three-year-old dog around the house versus a... <laughs> Like three month old. Oh, that's for sure. And in, in my case, this is a, a new breed for me. I've never, I've never raised one of the spaniel breeds. Mm-hmm. Um, I went from wire hairs to setters the last ten years. I've had setters, and so I just wanted to try something different. And I got an English cocker spaniel. Is, would you say it's a little bit higher drive than or higher energy <sighs> than the know, setters? Or yeah, yeah. But I think raising her in the house with the setters. Mm-hmm. she's pretty chill she'll come in and lay down oh yeah but um yeah she's pulled puppy and you get her outside and you get her revved up pretty quick and yeah but smart man i'm i'm impressed with how smart that breed is and it's gaining in popularity and i know you've uh you've been to some of the pointing dog trials now too and a lot of those plantations down south that used to have a labrador on the quail wagon mm-hmm. you know, a lot of them have been replaced by the cockers yeah and they've done well in our shed dog trials. Yeah, they you know? have. I've seen a couple of those uh, those come through. I've seen a couple for HRC too. They're yeah. they're, they're making their way around the the sports. For I sure. think they are gaining in popularity. So that's good as long as it goes the right direction. Yeah. You know, but tell us about your pup. Oh man, um, she's she's a little bit wide open. She's living up to her name. Everyone warned me, hey, if you're going to name that dog Rebel, you know, words have power. <laughs> And, uh, so far she's, she's making all those people right. So, um, you know, high energy, high drive. She's actually, uh, out of one of the, uh, champion shed dogs we have in our shed dog series. That was our sire. And you're you're female, right? Mm -hmm. So it's litter you bred. Yep. So I'm thankful I got to kind of decide how I want to raise them and got them on, on some certain, you know, puppy racing programs that have made my life a lot easier as a puppy owner. Um, but still you can't avoid certain things when it comes to puppyhood. Yeah. I'll say this. I, I learned, I've, I've raised a few litters of pups, coonhounds, beagles, um, bird dogs, but I'm not a breeder. (laughs) Some people are just not cut off for that. I'll, I'll get my puppy at seven weeks, eight weeks old and go from there. I am not a breeder. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of work. It is. It is. It takes a lot of attention. You have to plan your entire life around it for a little while. But, you know, it's uh, one of my, one of the puppies that just went home, their uh, owner sent me a video of their puppy retrieving a, I call it a, a big North Carolina shed antler, but <laughs> it's probably almost a spike to some of our Midwestern uh, yeah. shed dog participants. 
Well, it was funny because you and I were talking in my office yesterday afternoon and I had not puppy proofed it. In fact, Mm -hmm. it was only the second time I brought the puppy into the office. And as we're sitting there talking, puppy brought us a shed from uh, over on my lower (laughs) bookshelf. (laughs) And so I hadn't, I haven't shown her any sheds yet. Um, My goal is to really get her going on her upland birds first Mm -hmm. and get her fired up on birds. So I'll probably introduce sheds, you know, at this winter sometime. Well, it doesn't and, seem like you have to introduce them. She's she, already interested I in know, them. She liked those darn things. She brought all four of them to me. You better be careful if you have any antler handled knives laying around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. Well, well, what are we going to talk about today? Yeah, so I thought it would be a really good topic and, and really timely as well to kind of discuss the Elite Shed Dog rule changes. So Elite Shed Dog is is the youngest sport that we have in the hunting ops segment. And so with that is growing pains. Yeah. So there's always going to be some some evolution to what the rule book looks like and and how certain things are to be perceived or understood. And so this past year at Nationals, we unveiled some of the rule changes that we set in place for this current season. And uh, here we are, um, you know, a little bit into that season. And, and it felt like a, a good time to utilize this platform to kind of discuss those and maybe dive a little bit deeper into the the methodology behind it why we've made certain decisions and how we felt they would better the sport yeah that that's a good point it's the youngest one of our youngest programs and change does come quicker you take a program like coonhounds which is 60 years old and um yeah there's not as much change you know we've got all the bugs worked out of it but you know we're still learning in this program and some good suggestions from our clubs and people that are participating in the program so we yeah good worth it worth making adjustments mm-hmm. you know one of the the biggest uh questions that we keep getting asked is is about the uh the working structure how we plan on changing that and when that will be implemented and you know I, i'll say what i've told everybody that's reached out is we'll give you guys advance notice we're not going to drop it on you and say this weekend that takes effect and and so everyone will get advance notice on it but um, for those of you who might not be aware of those changes previously working, there was um, the ability to earn multipliers. It wasn't on a point structure um, and it used to only require uh, five passes. So we've kind of reworked it to model after our champion segment because champion has seemed to do so well. And so now there's a uh, working point structure. So it follows the exact same point structure of champion. So you have 35 points for first, 30 for second, 25 for third, uh, and 20 for fourth, and then passes are 10. And so one of the ideas behind that is it kind of rewards those dogs that are um, you know, constantly placing. It puts them, you know, they earn their working title a little bit quicker. And by taking away multipliers that were previously there, the idea is to kind of um, encourage them to move up to the next level, move up to champion and allow other dogs in working the same opportunity to, to shine and to earn placements. And uh, so that was, you know, that's on the horizon. That hasn't taken effect yet. Um, and any of the rules we kind of discussed that have changed or are going to change are also available on the website. Uh, under um, news, we have a whole write-up on the the rule changes and and everything that's um, either implemented or going to be implemented. But you know, what were some of your thoughts on on that change in that structure? Well, a little history for you. Um, a couple things. First of all, the idea behind 
um, having working be non-competitive goes back to when we founded our pointing dog program here at UKC. Uh, we made that lower level non-competitive and it was pass fail only. And I liked it, you know, um, gets new people in the sport. Everybody's helping each other. It's got a good vibe. And, but just naturally people want to know who did, who had the best run, you know? So mm -hmm. I get it. Um, all of our clubs were already, you know, singling those dogs out, maybe getting them fast, fast time award in that category anyway. So you know, it is, has evolved into being a little competitive, hopefully, you know, not crazy. Um, the point structure itself, that dates way back to, you know, early days of coonhounds. That's the same point structure we use in coonhounds, the same point structure we use in beagles. Uh, it has worked in our champion category in shed dog. So I think it was a no-brainer as far as, you know, deciding on how to do it. It's been, you know, it's already been worked out. So, yeah. I think it's I think it's good. I I think I like the idea of getting those dogs that um you know are dominating in that class to move up and clear the way for new participants and new dogs and um I I really like this change. Yeah, I think um I think it it definitely will help encourage somebody who might be tentative of moving up to the next level cuz they don't know how their dog's going to perform. You know, just take that leap. You, you might be surprised at, at how well that they'll actually do in that new environment. Um, not to mention, you know, it's a um, it's a good opportunity to to better your dog and help your dog reach their potential. If you get, um, you know, if you stay where your dog is doing well, you know, you might be missing out on potential to push your dog to the best that they can it's be. True. You know, and to the people that say, well, if you, if you don't hit a podium, it takes seven passes now where it used to take five. That's true. But if, um, if those big dogs are moving out of the way quicker, I do think there's going to be way more potential for the rest of the dogs to hit, hit podiums. And Absolutely. you hit one or two podiums and you're right, still back to five, four or five passes. Mm -hmm. Yep. Heck, you can do it a lot quicker than that, too, if, if your oh, yeah. dog ends up in the right place at the right time. Yep. Um, you know, uh, along with point structures being added to uh, working, something that we hadn't had in place in the past was, um, you know, point structure for youth. And so as far as tracking our youth year-end awards, we kind of felt like it would be a, uh, it would help the whole tracking process if we implemented that for the handlers. Now, those youth points don't go towards the dog or anything Correct. like that. It just goes towards tracking those handlers. Um, and, you know, it... It allows, uh, you know, kids who are um, really strong in that to to shine, but it also allows somebody who, uh, you know, might not be able to go to as many events but has a good dog to yeah. still get the opportunity to to be in the running for some of those year-end awards. And so just like the Coon Hounds and the Beagles and, and all of that, we follow that same point structure as we did in Working in Champion. So now might give people a little bit ability to to track on their own, um, somebody also asked me, Hey, if, uh, um, what about people going to events far and, you know, that, that have a very small, uh, dog base in it just to get youth handler awards and, you know, kind of the, that's almost a positive because you're almost encouraging people to go out to, to these more remote clubs to participate for the sake of maybe their, their kid gets a better shot at earning some points in youth. It it encourages some more participation. It's club support, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, 
Yeah, I like that one too. And also, you, um, I can remember doing this the last five seasons. There was a huge opportunity for ties the way we were doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get all those kids that are really pushing, and you get them, you know, they're one or two passes. You got four or five kids that are one or two passes. So I like this. This is going to virtually eliminate a tie, you know, problem. Um, and hey, it's, uh, you know, yeah, kids are going to be placed, but. I, I like it, you know, like if, if the parents are doing the right job of coaching them and, you know, you're you're winning and losing the right way with sportsmanship and grace and I, there's good lessons to be learned there. Oh, yeah. So and I'm sure people are kind of a little bit hesitant and are afraid that, oh, well, my, you know, younger kid isn't going to place over an older kid. And I, I've seen some results that that's not necessarily true. I've seen some. Some pretty young kids, as young as like six and seven, yep. you know, earning some placements over, you know, some little bit older kids. So, hey, it all goes back to having a good dog, spending a lot of time with it, mm-hmm. right? Getting your kid out there, working the working the dog, and um, yeah, it's a it's all all a factor for sure. Yeah. Well, how how long has you been part of the program? It's right from the start, so. It used to be, you know, before we expanded on it, it was um, dog of the year and youth of the year. So that has been here since the start. And then was it season five, season four or five that we expanded the program to include the other categories that are that are there now? Okay. Yeah, I came in towards the end of season five. Yeah. So I don't have, must have been season four. Okay. You know, kind of going into some of these other rule changes here. Um you know, there there's a lot of people brought up the the question of some verbiage. And so a lot of the rule changes were basically just clarification on what we intended certain rules to mean or how they should be interpreted. And so, um, you know, one of our rules in the past was, uh, you know, a dog entered in a champion event that did not earn a placement could revert back to working. And so there's dogs that are going up to champion and earning a pass and saying, well, he didn't earn a placement. And so we uh, we had to clarify on that some to uh, to essentially say if your dog earns a pass in champion, you, you stay in champion. You can go back and run working, but not for any sort of contention or anything like that if, if you feel like your dog desperately needs it. But, um, you know, it's not going towards anything. So the idea is to stay yeah. in champion and keep pushing your dog. Yeah, that's a, that was a, that was an interesting one for me because in my mind, going back to when we wrote these rules, in my mind, it was a pass. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why I always envisioned it that if you had a pass, you couldn't go back. But if someone brings our attention to it, and we're like, oh yeah, you're. That's not how we wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we did write placement, so. My mind was thinking one thing and wrote something else, but I, I like it. I think this is a good change. I, I fully supported that one. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're, we continue to talk about the growth of this sport. The, the sport's growing so fast that uh, a lot of clubs are starting to host three-day events and, and trying to do the best that they can to accommodate the, the number of dogs that are coming through. And so we kind of sat down and we're like, how can we accommodate this many dogs and so that's where the idea of the split fight format came in. And so that was something that um, was effective for this season. I don't think anyone's taken advantage of it yet or tried it out. I think people are probably a little hesitant to try something new. But Well, the big events are still to come. I mean, you know, this, uh, this fall you're going to see some big events. And Yeah. Um, 
But with that, it's adding that option for a club to um, essentially have multiple flights that, you know, dogs compete in that. And then you have a runoff for your actual placements. And so the way that we wrote that into the rules is the format must be advertised in the event posting in order to be held. So we don't want people expecting one type of format and showing up and being upset because they don't particularly like it. Um, And then it also requires 40 dogs participating in that class of the split on the day of the event. So not just 40 dogs signed up and entered and paid their dues, but 40 dogs on the ground the day of the event in order to split the flights. Um, Another uh, aspect to it is the flights must be randomly drawn. And so that's to, you know, we have good faith that our our participants are abiding by a code of ethics and and doing so with honor. Um, But, you know, there's always that concern of... You could stack a flight, you know, and really screw things up, and that's what we're trying to avoid. And even... The craziest thing about doing things random is sometimes they don't end up looking random. And so by having it in the rules, if somebody says, hey, that that flight does not look random at all. There's you know, there's a grand champion and the rest only have their working title. Something's yeah. a little off here. Um, you know, it's in the rules. So if somebody has a, a complaint or an issue where they feel like somebody's not abiding by the rules, we, we can kind of look into it. Um, and then to follow up for placements, if you have split flights, the idea is you have two flights. We're, we didn't necessarily build it to have a four-flight event. I don't think we have the dogs to yeah, have a four-flight yeah. event. Someday, maybe. But um, you know that in that idea, you have your two flights. The top two fastest dogs from that flight have a runoff for the top four placements on a separate course. Yeah, a course that none of the dogs have run yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's... Nobody's taking advantage of that. We well, I be... like it. It gives clubs opportunities, you mm-hmm. know. And and I and if they don't want to do it, and there are some clubs that don't like the concept, and that's fine. I, you know, they can they got the manpower to run, you know, a fifty dog champion class. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a long day, but go for it. This I think for the clubs that have the grounds, um, and have judges. Gosh, you know, it sure cuts your day in half as far as is time. And Absolutely. If you got the, if you got, you know, if you can coordinate it, you get go for it. Mm-hmm. I, I like, I like the fact that clubs, it's up to the club. Yeah. You know, they can do it however they want. I think the runoff would would be pretty interesting too, because in theory, you're getting the chance to to put the top four dogs in that class up against each other for that runoff. Oh yeah. I feel like it. Uh, be interesting to be there I, yeah I, I keep keeping an eye open for any clubs hosting it that way because i'd like to go see it yeah it and uh see how it runs yep uh, that was a good change i think i like it yeah what's next so we have a uh um we had the issue come up some where events were getting submitted to us to post on the website however the event was already full so it was almost kind of like a little carrot dangled in front of people they you know, a lot of people routinely check that events calendar. And when they see something new pop up, they get excited. Oh, that's in my state. I'm going to jump on it. But then it said at the bottom, event closed or all entries filled yeah. or things like that. So um, we added it to um, this rule stating an event must have a minimum of 20 dogs per flight across all classes before they can close an event. 
Um, that way, people get the opportunity to enter and a club can't say, well, we know what grounds and what manpower we have. We can only have 10 dogs in a class and just post it for the sake of going through the motions. Yeah. Um, so hopefully with that, we encourage, again, larger events, be able to accommodate more people. More um, credible degrees, titles, mm -hmm. right? More competition in yep. the class than closing it early. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was a good good move right there. And we we threw around different numbers. Was it twenty? Is it twenty five? Is it thirty? You know, I don't know. I I like I think it's good twenty, and it goes along with the rule above it with the split. You know, being forty. So yeah, and it still allows a club to say, oh well, we can accommodate forty dogs. Fantastic, go for it. Yeah. Um, but we just don't want you know those Less events than... with yeah. Oh, um, no, that was a good one. Yeah, and so. Uh, another rule that was kind of not necessarily in need of clarification, but clarification could be given was about um, dogs in season being run by judges and shed planters. Yeah. Um, so I think previously it stated there, it was two rules that were in conflict, right? You had the yeah. first rule said judges or shed planters could run their dog first on any course. Um, were required to run first. Yeah. And, uh, dogs in season had to run last if allowed by the club to run at all right and so those two were in contention where if a judge had a dog that was in heat where do you run them yeah um and so i don't think it came up often but the fact that we had those two rules were kind of conflicting and it was brought up to us about how they did conflict or hey my dog came into heat i'm judging this event um what do i do we put that in the rules to to ensure there's solid understanding so now the rule says because of the conflict between dogs and season and the requirement for judges and shed planters run first uh judges and shed planters can no longer run a female in season yeah there's just enough people to feel it's, it's just not fair for a person to judge you know get to watch how 20 different dogs work a course um, it's, there's some knowledge to be gained when you can watch that all day mm -hmm. and it comes time to run your own dog. You, it, it is probably a, an advantage. So I get it. I think it's a good rule. Um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate for the, for judges or planners to have that happen. Uh, I've been there. I like to hunt female dogs myself and guess what? You know, yeah. It seems like it's always at the wrong time when they're coming in season on you, but that's part of it, I guess. Well, you know what they say, a female dog's in season twice a year, a male dog's in season <laughs> yeah. the whole year long. So yeah. it yeah. happens. It does. Um, but, you know, we kind of put that in there to to clarify those two rules in conflict. Yeah. Um, and it's also might be worth mentioning, too. I don't know if you think so, but um, if a if a judge chooses to run their dog in event, that dog's in contention the same as any other dog. That's right. Um, so that dog... If, um, you know, if that dog runs the best time of the day, that dog ran the best time of the day, um, you, they, they still run under all the same rules as any other dog. Sure. sure. Um, so it was a pretty common request in the sport to have the word replant defined. So it was kind of loosely, um, mentioned in the rules about what a replant was or it was context clues as to what it was. Yeah. But it didn't have an explicit definition. And it, that's a hard one to write too. I mean, it is. But fortunately we got a, we've got somebody in the sport that's pretty, uh, pretty knowledgeable when it comes to legal jargon and writing something that's, that's comprehensive that helps. And so 
um, they actually submitted a suggestion, and this kind of goes back to us mentioning the uh, um, mentioning the process. So we often will hear in input from the sport, from clubs, from judges about certain rules as they come up, um, and say, "Hey, we might need to look at this one here because." this is a question I keep getting and I don't know how to answer as a judge and there's not an explicit one in the rules or, hey, here's an issue I keep running into. It's not stated against the rules, but it seems like it might not be um, in good sport to do it. And so a lot of our rule changes, when we say came from the sport, we really mean that that uh, we had input from people reaching out to us and, and submitting suggestions to us. Um, and so again, this is one of those, uh, those rules. And so, um, somebody in the sport said, Hey, here's a way that you can kind of word it somewhat. And it helped lay the foundation for that definition to ensure that, you know, you and I, we know the sport, but we don't compete in the sport. Yeah. So there might be certain things that we don't always think of. Um, and so that definition was written as, in the situation where a replant is required, a replant must mean that the course is changed in some way, but of a similar or comparable difficulty to the original plant. And I feel like that really encompasses a lot of different situations um, and allows us to have some sort of definition on it, not somebody reaching out and saying, well, they replanted the shed, but all they did is they put it tines down versus tines yeah, up or yeah. you know, little things like that. Well, and it still leaves it up to club and judge, you know, cl not clarification, but they have the options, you know, to how they're going to redo their course and do a replant. So I like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not as specific as saying you got to move each antler 10 foot, mm -hmm. you know, but it gives, you know, it gives judges some leeway in designing their course. Um, you know, we're just trying to make it fair for all dogs. Take, always keep that into consideration. Mm-hmm. You know, change the course up a little bit. Try to keep the same difficulty level. I, I don't. I don't see it. We're not going to have any problems with that. I don't think so either. Um, you know, it, and kind of going back to to the sport as a whole, one of the biggest parts of of the um, reputation behind a sport and how reputable titles are is the ethics behind it as well. And so we felt like it was due time to kind of put something in there to explicitly define some some ethics when it comes to sportsmanship. And so we added a new rule um, about sharing information or trying to obtain information that you shouldn't have um, to ensure that it's fair for everybody. So we added in there that anyone caught sharing information or illegitimately obtaining information about plants or blanks will be disqualified and may first may face further disciplinary action from the United Kennel Club. Um, I don't think it's a huge issue in our sport, but I think when it comes up, we need to have something in there that addresses that. And that's kind of where that came yeah, from. Yeah, I, I think so too. And I think we need to be strict on it. You know, it is a key component of the game. Um, mm -hmm. Fortunately, we have a lot of great people in the sport and it's not, it's not a problem. Um, it's the potential for a problem does exist though. So fair warning, I guess you'd say, yeah, <laughs> this is fair warning. It's where we're taking it seriously and we will act on it. So absolutely. You know, maybe that's something too, that, that clubs discuss at their handlers meetings. I, I it, think it's definitely something that needs to be almost boilerplate for our, for judges meetings in the morning. 
This podcast is brought to you by the all-new Dogtra Pathfinder 2. Dogtra, the official GPS collar partner of UKC. So one of the other, the next rule change that, that kind of came up as well. Um, so we touched on what a replant is. Um, another thing worth mentioning is what are legitimate plants? What is something that's a fair plant for a dog to try to find? Um, and so we uh, added a rule in there that said, no judge or shed planter shall plant an antler where the environmental conditions of the day with respect to wind, thermals, uh, temperature, require the dog to be in another block or out of bounds to locate the antler. And so, you know, the boundaries are kind of a big, uh, big part of the course. And so as in fairness to the dog, if the wind is blowing from right to left and you plant an antler right there on the left boundary, where's that dog got to be to be able to, to scent that antler out of bounds. And so, um, in situations like that, we felt like it would be, um, best to have some sort of rule in there that explicitly states, Hey, let's keep these dogs where they should be. If the dog is looking in the right area, it should be able to find it with regards to the, the boundaries on the course. Yeah. And that's something judges need to keep in mind because conditions change all throughout the day, right? So you can't set your course up in the morning when you, if you got a stiff west wind, assuming that that's going to hold all day, you know, wind changes up and now it's, it's, it's all screwed up. So Gosh, don't push, don't push the limits on boundary lines, yeah. man. Give, have some leeways, you know, so weather changes, you know, doesn't completely screw your course up. You'd think it would be common sense, but it's a good, I guess it's a good reminder. Yeah. I mean, again, that's, that's more or less, that's almost like a test question, right? For the judges, when it comes yeah. to somebody wants to be a judge, that's, you know, one of the questions that when they read through the rules, that should stick out to them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you just got to be you just got to be aware that the conditions are going to change throughout the day. Yeah. Uh, judges need to be aware of that. Mm -hmm. New judges. For sure. So, yeah, because and we have strict we have um, set course lines, you know, and guy and handlers are going to be calling their dogs back on a course the minute the second he's, you know, potentially across the line. And, and if you the dog's not going to have an opportunity to find an antler. Yeah, that's I, not good. HRC kind of has a, a theory that I've heard them mention a couple of times of you can't fault a dog for using their nose. Yeah. And it's almost like in that situation, the dog is working, it's using its nose, but you're calling it back because it's out of bounds or something. It's like, boss, yeah. I think it's over here. Yeah. Yeah. That's a um, good clarification. Mm -hmm. Good reminder for everybody. So uh, <laughs> this might have been the, the one that I got the most questions about at the national the day after we... Uh, we brought this rule up and it was in regards to treats. <laughs> um, so we added an explicit rule in the rule book regarding them. And in that they're able to be used in working in youth, but not champion. And we also addressed accidentally dropping treats on the course as well. Um, so the reason we, we addressed um, the dropping of treats is because Again, we always want to have the most faith in the ethics and everything behind um, participants in the sport. And uh, sometimes other participants don't always think the same thing of that. So they might run their dog and have a terrible time and it finds some, some uh, deer droppings or something and get hung up in a certain spot. And if, if treats aren't addressed in the rule book, somebody can say, 
oh well i think so and so i saw somebody giving their dog treats they must have dropped treats over there that's why my dog's running so slow or not paying attention to sheds um and so we had to address it almost for to cover the the individuals that do use it um and it was also asked hey what about treats on champion and so I think in in discussion, one of the things that came up the most is Champion is is supposed to be of a higher tier. It's supposed to be of a higher rigor, and we recognize that that food treats are a big motivator for for a lot of dogs. Um, but when you get to that Champion level, we kind of want to see the dogs work without that type of food motivation behind it, um, and so yeah. kind of challenging those dogs a little bit more in that Champion class. Uh, I did get the question about non-food treats, though. Oh. People were asking me, hey, what about tug toys or yeah. um, crack balls or anything like that? Um, and so, you know, as it's written in the rules, if you have a non-food treat, I guess you can you can use it um, because it's not tampering, I guess, with the environment. That's the biggest thing yeah. with the, the food treats is it kind of tampers with the course if some slip out of a pocket. Yeah. You know, not, we don't all train the same way. There's different theories. That's that's cool. I, I'm, I think it's good to clarify this. It could affect, you know, it could affect things. It is at the working level. So, um, you know, hopefully it won't be a, a big problem. But, um, yeah, so judges are going to need, need to be aware of handlers that are treating and, and pay attention if there's drop and, and call. You know, you're going to have to st stop the person and mm -hmm. address it. So... Yeah, but it's yeah, it's for the introductory class, and I'm fine with it. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know that I would train that way, but that's all right. Yeah, I mean, like you said, everyone trains a little bit differently. Yeah. Some people incorporate treats in their training early on and, and yeah. dissipate. Other people continue to pay their dog throughout its life. So, um, hopefully, you know, people kind of see the the idea behind that. I will say a success story. I've heard a couple success stories about it. People were really concerned. Hey, my dog's moving into champion or my dog's in champion and I treat them the whole time. I don't know how my dog's going to perform with this new rule. Well, their dogs are performing pretty well. Um, I, from the ones that I've heard from or heard about, their dogs are, are still finding success at that level, even without having that, that um, food motivator on the course. And yeah. so it might have been that little nudge like we don't want to define how you train your dog yeah. but it might be again another nudge to get a little bit more potential out of your dog um and so i kind of uh i smiled a little bit when i saw that i was like good you know they they see that their dog is working well and faith, hopefully huh? they yeah hopefully the dog <laughs> continues to work well with uh without the use of treats and hey if you want to jackpot your dog when you get back to the car or something go yeah. for it but um you know now it helps cover people and just because you're using treats somebody doesn't use you as an excuse of why their dog doesn't do well that's right um and it is written in there that you know judges will uh directly address that with you if you drop a treat give you a warning and you know it leaves it up to the judges on whether they continue to warn you over and over after that right um so the uh title structure that's uh that's another change that we've kind of implemented. Um, and so we wanted to continue to maintain integrity and value in these certain titles. And so when it comes to elite shed dog, we changed this rule to say um, 
a dog must beat at a minimum of six other dogs in an event in order for a first place win to count towards elite. So previously, it was just um, three first place wins after your dog earned their champion title for elite. Right. Um, and, you know, it didn't come up often, but there's a few events where, you know, the dog only had to beat three or four, maybe yeah. five other dogs. And uh, we felt like that might be unfair for the same dogs that earned their elite title when they went to an event with 25 dogs and were the best dog out of 25. And so by having kind of some sort of baseline of your dog has to at least beat this many, it truly means that those dogs earning that title of elite shed dog are are very competitive um, elite shed dogs. It's a tough one to write because on one hand, you want to protect the integrity of our, our titles. But on the other hand, you got to be, you know, aware that clubs out on the fringes and new clubs out in Idaho or wherever they're being formed, they don't have the, they don't have the pool of entries to draw from that we do, you know, in Indiana or Ohio. So, you know, you got to do the best you can and try to protect integrity, but, you know, not, not, you not know, snuff out those yeah, new those, clubs. Yeah, those new clubs. So I think it's good. I think it does that. That's a good start. Speaking of new clubs, we've had a, a couple of new clubs added here recently and a lot of clubs having their inaugural uh, events. Yeah, it's going good. There's there's a lot of good participation on those those newer yeah. events. And th this, this change also, uh, I believe, references that the first place wins must be earned after um, your champion title. For yet for your elite for your elite title. Yeah, I can't remember. There was the some confusion on that in the old rules, so that, that's a good. Mm -hmm. There's a clarification. Yeah. Um. So another clarification when we get down to youth as well um, was defining that what youth are, and so we define defined youth as uh, um, kids who are 15 years old at the start of the shed dog season. Um, are eligible to participate um, and we kind of touched on it as well at the beginning but you know adding that youth uh, point structure as well to help us track youth of the right. year right um, you know the uh, the other side of it of you know tracking year end points too um, and, and talking about seasons and everything one of those things that we we're looking at potentially in the near future is adjusting what our, our season is. You know, historically it's been following the, the national event, um, which, you know, might get a little bit confusing sometimes. So we're potentially looking at making that season uh, calendar year, January through February or January through December. And, you know, that allows national to be part of a uh, part of the season and points wards and point structures. And it, the issue that was mentioned was when we took away two weeks before the national to count towards uh, dog of the year, a lot of events historically had dates that were, you know. Fell in that window. Yeah. And so they felt like they would either miss out on participation or they wouldn't get the opportunity to, to make a stronger bid at, at the national like they had previously. So by going to a calendar year, that, that doesn't keep anyone's event from counting towards dog of the year. I don't know. I, th I think you're more sold on it than I am. So it's, it's being discussed, right? Yeah. And we'll, we'll continue to get more input from people. I, I get it. Um, that's how the Purina Coonhound Awards ran too. They were over, you know, December 31st and they weren't awarded until March. So mm -hmm. 
I don't know. On one hand, it seems like that long of a window, people, it just lost some excitement. Uh, the way we're doing it now, we're finishing up two weeks later, bam, we're awarding stuff at the Nationals. Uh, I I don't know. A season to me just seems like it starts the week after the Nationals. That's our big event, our big showcase, right? So it seems to me in my mind that the the year runs from National to National. But, yeah, it would be nice to have more time in front of the Nationals to work on things. Plus, it, it stays fixed. You know, January 1st is always going to be January 1st, but the National – you know, there might be a year where the national moves dates. Yeah. And so when people are trying to look forward, there's a, there's some shed dog clubs that are trying to plan um, amongst themselves like 2023, 2024 dates to make sure that they don't have conflicts or anything. And so they're planning around anticipated dates for national, which, you know, is always subject to change if there's an issue with grounds or, yeah. or anything like that. Well, it's something we'll, we'll continue to monitor and yeah. get some feedback on. Yeah. Um, and speaking of the season, the way we we wrote it in the past had been um, one week leading up to the national, and so that was a change in the rules as well. Is it it needed to be two weeks before national because when that rule was initially written, there was so much uh, the sport wasn't what it is today. No, it's no. And so as far as processing time in the office to make sure we count all these dog of the year points and get reports get everyone, in mm-hmm, yeah. and find out eligibility and all things like that. Um, we we needed that extra week yep. to to get all that through. Yep. Um, and it's also worth mentioning. I noticed in the rules, there's there's a little. It's weird. The rules outline what the quarters are, but it says some weird stuff in there. I'm not sure it was a typo or what it was, but we probably need to get that addressed. It says something like May through October yeah, is a quarter, and then January just, and someone February. just brought that art to our attention. We need to fix that. Yeah. So, um. You know, a quarter is a quarter. Yeah, it's, it's a, a fourth of the <laughs> yeah. fourth of the total time. Yeah. Um. So, what a what is kind of some of your thoughts on? Well, I think uh, too. We should we should that kind of wraps up our that kind of wraps up our summary, right? Those are the changes for yeah. this year. Yep, those were the um, official changes. You talked about some of them still have to be you know, aren't in effect yet because of programming. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't know if we have any dates or any hints and tips on that. Uh, you know, that's a big, that's a, that's a hot topic, but um, let's talk a little bit about how, how do these proposals get made? Mm-hmm. And up till, up till now, we've always done it is uh, any club, Clubs are invited to send in proposals. Mm-hmm. And we get quite a few. I, I, I certainly appreciate all the input we get from clubs. It's great. And then uh, we go through them and kind of, you know, talk amongst ourselves and talk to other people and just see which ones have the most merit and, you know, are for the better of the program. So that's what, that's what these resulted from is clubs that, you know, submitted these proposals. And uh, so I want to thank all the clubs that, took the time to write in and suggest changes clubs and individuals too. I mean, the, the best way is to go through the clubs, but, um, you know, uh, something that we, we want to put in place moving forward is, uh, a rules committee. So, um, like I said, there were people calling in with, with rules suggestions and, you know, it kind of muddies the water a little bit as an individual, but, um, you know, having a rules committee, especially as fast as the sport's growing, helps us to look at it from a bunch of different perspectives, 
ensure we have input from active individuals in the sport. And those committee members would ideally be people who are are very involved in the sport as well. So if you're a participant in the sport and you say, hey, I, I have this question about this rule or, hey, here's an idea, they can then more than likely find one of those individuals at that event and go, hey, I know you're on the rules committee. Yeah, share their ideas. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it's a way to, for us, we can't be at all of these different events, um, but it's almost an uh, ability to kind of extend us a little bit. Yep. So more to come on that. Thanks for listening to the UKC Hunting Ops podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and to like and follow UKC Hunting Ops on Facebook and Instagram.